Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Roman, and Roman was married to a bluff and smear narcissist. It's a story of mirroring, facades, victim playing, threats, triangulation, and the normalization of chaos. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. With me today, I have Roman. How are you? I'm well, sir. How are you? I am good. And today we are going to hear the story of your marriage to a very slick chameleon. And this person was able to show themselves in different ways to different people. And you never really knew what you were going to get or what was being said about you when you were not there. So thank you for, for being here today. And now, without further ado, Roman, the floor is now yours. Well, thank you, Brandon. Um it's like, as you described, a very slick chameleon. I mean, she was a very charming individual. She could be, you know, whoever you needed her to be in certain groups. She could um, carry on a conversation about most any topic, as long as it's on the surface level. You know, <clears throat> should you ask her about, um, you know, as we spoke before, should you ask her about college basketball? She would have a very a baseless level of, teams and the tournament and how you know, college basketball is exciting. But as you, you know, as I learned over the years, as you kind of dove a little deeper into the second layer of questions, the knowledge sort of faded and it became a lot of, Oh yeah. You know, I remember when, you know, for instance, as we were speaking, I remember when Stacy Ogman played for the Bearcats, you know, well, you, you know, you kind of pause and you'd say, well, you know, Stacey Ogman didn't play for the Bearcats. He played for the UNLV Rebels. And, you know, to a, to a person you just met, it was an honest mistake. It was an innocent, you know, error, kind of a blunder, kind of a, you know, you laughed about it, and you didn't really think a thing about it. And what I came to found out, uh, find out was that essentially she would take everyone else's conversation and sort of fill in the blanks for her own narrative. 
So, so before we get to her narrative, let's start off with who you are, Roman. Where'd you come from? Tell us everything. Yes, sir. I, I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, very kind of a, a big, small city in the Midwest. And I went to a local you know, sort of private school here in Cincinnati and then moved on to the University of Cincinnati where I studied finance and marketing. And I took a job um, sort of out of college working for a manufacturing company, um, a employee-owned manufacturing company here in the city. And, you know, as every marketer in Cincinnati does, they have the opportunity to go to work for the big uh, company here, the Procter & Gamble. And I just decided that was not for me. You know, great marketers obviously work for Procter & Gamble. And what I found was a more fit for myself was a more intimate sort of um, – you know, for lack of better terms, family environment where, you know, we all we each were invested in the company. And I, I liked that at the end of the day, we made something. So, you know, marketing can be and very diverse so that you can market financial goods or you can market, you know, actually consumer goods. But I liked that I could go down to the floor and we were making something on the machines that, you know, folks then made other things with. And that was exciting to me that, um, you know, I, I got to see the machine tools made, and I got to see the impact of those machine tools created in you know other businesses where they made things that consumers would use. Um, and and before and, you got to this point of your life, growing up with within your family system, did you grow up in any sort of chaos? Like, what kind of stuff were you used to? And um, did you have any belief systems? Uh, about the world, about relationships, or anything that might have uh, hindered you uh, going into eventually the relationship that we're going to be discussing? Yeah, I grew up um, in sort of a Christian uh, background family, and my my parents were you know, together, not divorced, throughout my childhood, still together. Um, never really experienced a lot of children who were from divorces. Never, you know, I, as I say to, you know, folks I meet and friend, friends that are still, I'm so close with is I never knew these kind of folks existed. So I never really knew to look for that. And, you know, it's possible I was quite naive about, um, you know, different personalities that existed and just wasn't really, I guess, aware that there were folks out there that would behave in an un an unhonest and untruthworthy fashion. I mean, obviously I can't say that I've gone through my life without telling a white lie here or there or doing wrong as we all do, but I never realized it was that there was evil on this level. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, not to get into a, for lack of better terms, not to get into a bashing session on my former spouse, but just was unaware that, this sort of thing could exist or did exist and that it was something, you know, to be aware of. And as far as what you wanted in life, you know, you, you know, you've already told us the type of place that you wanted to work, but as far as, uh, you know, a family goes, did the divorce have a lot of an impact on you in the sense of, you know, I want to have, uh, you know, the, the wife, this many kids, I want to live 
in this specific type of place. And I want someone who is on the exact same page as how our future looks, where we want to live, uh, our goals, you know, where we like, uh, my job, your job, independence, etc. Yeah. You know, I wanted, I grew up in Cincinnati and I spent, you know, some time in California, kind of out West and, um, with my, you know, my job. And I said, you know, having all my family here is great, but it, it would be fun to have a fresh start to kind of move out West and experience, you know, sort of that outdoor culture and you know, experience the ocean and the mountains. And um, I don't know that I was necessarily looking for someone who really wanted that, um, but I was looking for someone who was open to that. And when I met my former spouse, you know, one I can remember like it was yesterday, you know, one of the first conversations we had at a Bearcat football game, as a matter of fact, was that, we, you know, we're each looking for sort of a fresh start. We were both in our late twenties and, you know, she was open very much to you know, my idea of moving to California and um, kind of getting away from, you know, some of our friends that we have our entire life and not getting away from our family per se, but just being able to start a new life with you know, this partner that you at the time felt like you felt saw eye to eye on things. So walk us through the first time you meet this person, uh, what goes on, and I guess the whole courting process here. So actually, I just came back from California on a uh, business trip, and um, a gentleman I had um, that was doing embroidery for our company, um, he came into my office, and we were talking about some hats that I had ordered, and he said something about his his daughter, who I knew as his daughter at the time, um, you know, had just gotten over a relationship in the past three or four months and, you know, just couldn't find, you know, a guy that would, that would want to settle down and have family. And, you know, would I be willing to take her to a UC Bearcat game? I said, you know, sure. I would, you know, I'd be happy to take her. I had season tickets at the time. So, you know, I had tickets enough to take her and, you know, we went to a game and, um, you know, I thought nothing about it. Here's a man I knew for the time four years that had done work for our company and who I, you know, had motorcycle rides and drinks with and just, um, you know, in my mind was, you know, good guy. I never thought a thing about, you know, what kind of person he was other than, you know, he did honest work and good work for our company. And here he is setting me up with, again, as I, as I knew at the time, his daughter, and, you know, what could go wrong here, right? And um, so we went to the game and had a good time. And the following day, uh, I actually took a motorcycle ride as well. Uh, I have a motorcycle, and she w- expressed interest in going on a ride. And that was sort of the beginning of the courtship. When I met her, she was open to anything. You know, nothing extreme, but just very carefree, very, hey, you want to do a motorcycle ride? Sure, let's go do that. Hey, do you... you know, uh, obviously, you know, our first date was a football game. And, you know, do you enjoy football? Yeah, I love, you know, the response is, yes, I love football. And, you know, she's taking pictures by the Bearcat statue and just sort of immediately felt as though it was a melding of, you know, two individuals who just wanted to kind of smile and um, enjoy each other and, and, uh, be, be left alone to enjoy each other. So is it safe to say, knowing little bits about your story, very little, but from what I understand, 
that whatever you're going to say, what you like or want to do in the future, she's going to mirror back to you as, of course I do. She's going to go with the flow. It's safe to say now looking back, that was the case. At the time, I didn't recognize it as mirror. I didn't recognize it as as sort of, you know, her, as you, you know, as you say, showing back my passions and my uh, my sort of interest to me and in, in a very sincere manner. I did not recognize it as that. I recognized it as simply someone who saw things I was interested in, shared them with me, and, you know, she likewise shared her interest with with me who I took interest in them and she was very interested in travel and had a very close group of friends that I, you know, was blessed enough to, you know, great be ingratiated into. And I enjoyed sort of her group of friends, which I didn't have a lot of close friends. So that was nice to have sort of that second family. And it was nice to have her, you know, kind of introduce me and, and be proud of, sort of my unique interest outside of her friend group. So for the most part here, there is no love bombing in the sense of how we understand it or a lot of stories that have happened on our show have happened. What's going on here is you're in a normal, regular relationship or you think you are. And this is the courting process. This is a normal courting process. You think you guys are getting along swimmingly except what we find out later is behind the scenes. She really has zero interest in any of the things she's saying that you're interested in at all. That's correct. Yeah. The love bombing, I think, you know, took place maybe a year into the relationship, sort of as we were engaged and as we became married. Um, so it was sort of a very passive, um, you know, how would I describe it? Sort of a uh, catch me if you can type of, um, sort of a catch me if you can type of approach with her initially, in that you know she wasn't sure if she was over this previous relationship, but she certainly enjoys being with me, and you know she has some issues with um, her, you know her father, her birth father, as she says, and that you know she just really hasn't found a guy that can handle those issues and be sensitive to those, and so I thought. You know, this is kind of how they set you up as the hero and as the savior um, before, you know, as we go into the story, before the devaluing starts. But, you know, yeah, I thought, okay, you know, here's a young lady who's had some father issues. Certainly, I never had those. And so I was sensitive to those. And I understand that folks come from different backgrounds than myself and thought, okay, well, the story she's telling must be true. You know, it must be that she had an abusive father and this man who I've never met did these horrible things that were described to me. And she certainly was scarred by that. And I was sensitive to that and to not, you know, portray the, the accusations of a controlling man or a verbally abusive man, or, you know, those strong traits that she found, um, you know, to be an, a negative in her life or a trigger in her life. And I was very sensitive not to display those, be very flexible when she wanted to go out with her friends and she had different ideas and she wanted to go to different places. And sure, you know, you share what I love. So obviously, you know, in turn, it's only fair that I share what you love. 
So within this time, she's giving you this story. We'll find out later if it's true or not, but she's playing uh, the victim here, draws you in a little more, gives her a little bit more wiggle room or leeway, knowing that that story uh, is able to uh, manipulate your feelings and things that you might do. You're controlling what you are saying as far as triggers and things are, are going. You're making sure certain things aren't happening. Are there any other things in hindsight that you now realize that might have been starting to be implanted then that would come back to hurt you later? Well, she talked a lot about her ex-boyfriend. And, you know, this is a sensitive subject to... You know, anyone going into a relationship when, you know, you're being negatively or positively compared to exes, you know, uh, most of the time it was a very overtly positive comparison. You are so much better in XYZ than so-and-so. You are, you know, so much more understanding than so-and-so. So-and-so did me wrong in so many different ways that you never have done in the year I've known you. Um, but then you, you'd find yourself, you know, I found myself a couple times in these scenarios where we would go out and we would, you know, in my mind at the time, it was completely coincidence where we would run into an ex or run into, you know, someone she had dated in the past. And, you know, she would play it off as though, oh, this was an accident. You know, he, he's so awful. And then sort of the girlfriend group would rally around and, you know, you're so much better with your new man than, than this old man. And, you know, I, I thought nothing about it. I didn't, didn't really put any time into thinking about it at first. And then as it sort of built up, it became this, this thing where I thought, you know, in hindsight, I see now that basically she used it to continually sort of, either overtly or passively create this competition with someone I had never met, someone I didn't know, you know, this individual's story and hers, but you were constantly, I was in this case, I was constantly being sort of in competition with these men who were no longer in her life. Okay. So I'm going to do my own little roundup here so I can get myself and maybe everyone else on the same page. This is what's going on. Are you ready? So, one, victim player, and we'll get back to that in a second. Two, bad exes, constantly comparing them, you, comparing you to them, building you up at the same time, championing you, championing, championing you uh, creates a kind of competition. In another strange way, you're being triangulated with these people that aren't even realizing they're part of it. And the biggest thing here... When you take all of these things together, especially with her friends who are always by her side in the sense of oh, this person did you wrong and now you're part of that group at the same time, her life MO will be that you know everyone has always wronged her in some sort of way. Everyone then gets compartmentalized and smeared. So they can never say anything back. Everyone always believes her stories of what she is saying about these people. And then she just continues down this line 
over and over and over and over again. And you just happen to be one person in this line that's going to continue over and over and over again. That's correct. And as I found out sort of post-divorce and even even, even during the divorce, we had a couple that were very close to us. And in fact, you know, so close that they were the couple that, you know, we had willed our children to, I mean, they were, they were to be the caretakers and, you know, it wasn't, um, you know, I was honestly, Brandon, it wasn't six months ago that I spoke with this young lady and she kind of said, you know, you know, we really feel ashamed that we've listened to this over the years. You know, this, your ex um, had been telling us stories you know, even five years prior to meeting you. And it seems like she's repeating the same story with you who you had been married to and had three children with for seven years. She's repeating the same story that she did with guys she dated for five months. And we, we never really thought a thing about it. We, we just thought she had run into some bad luck and surely a mother of three wouldn't lie and tell stories on this level if they weren't true. And, you know, sort of what I ran into is, as you say, the triangulation where there were stories being told that I wasn't even aware of behind my back. And you would go to parties or you would go to events. And, you know, now you see it, but in the moment you don't see it where people are questioning you about certain things. And you're giving an honest answer, but what you're really doing is you're walking right into the story she's already told. So if she was to tell a story about getting in some sort of argument that where she, you know, she would leave out the part of what, you know, threatening you with divorce and threatening you that you'll never see your children again. She would leave that part out. But the part she would tell is that, you know, you got very emotional and you were very upset with her for getting angry about, you know, what seemed to be a very minor thing. And, you know, anyone who is stable would never be this angry about some minor thing. But, you know, then you get in a situation where are you going to, are you going to expose to her girlfriend that, oh, wait, you missed the first part where she expressed I would never see my children again? Because you don't, you know, you, I still even to almost the last day thought we can work this out. We can make this happen. You know, we've built a family. We've built a home. We've built, you know, our life together. And I'm not going to sell this person down the river for something they said in the heat of the moment. And little did you know that they have they've already sold you out for the things that they um, sort of baited you into doing, and you were unaware that they were telling this intimate story. So, you know, we'll we'll get to all of this because there's a lot in between. Um, so, you know, your your courtship happens. Uh, you know, what I guess what is the I guess the first kind of future plan like where do you guys go from here um as far as do you get married do you move and then when does the devaluation begin where you start to notice it yeah we get married we we were engaged a year after we met um so you know being sort of an artistic person sat down designed her wedding and engagement ring uh, had those made gave obviously proposed gave them to her And, you know, all this time we're talking about, you know, what would our life look like, you know, when or if we move, if we're able to have the opportunity. And, you know, I think looking back, she, I believe, never thought we would have that opportunity. She was just banking sort of the bluffing. But I've I found that 
she kind of lived her entire life on a bluff, you know, basically bluffing that something wouldn't happen. And, you know, if it did, then she would rationalize why it shouldn't take place or should take place. But, you know, essentially going along with the story of whatever my passions were at the time, thinking they would never come to fruition. Well, I had an interview with a company in California, and um, at the time, my ex was extremely excited about it and, you know, was, again, outwardly showing her support. And I believe that, you know, hindsight, she probably never thought it would come to fruition, and she would become the benefactor of being the very supportive new wife that was on board with, you know, her husband's dreams, yet, you know, unfortunately, his dreams just fell short. Well, in this case, they didn't fall short. I actually got a very lucrative offer to move to Camarillo, and her and I flew out there. Um, we're flown out there by the company, looked at houses, condos, looked at, you know, different little convertible cars for her and just talked about where we would live and how we would, you know, build our life here in Camarillo. It was a small town sort of in um, southern to mid-California. And, um, you know, as it got more serious, you know, we went to one of her friend's weddings. And I remember, like it was yesterday, sitting at you know, this table we were assigned to and her saying, well, girls, you know, it looks like we're moving to California for a job. And, you know, I look over, you know, minutes later, I look over and, you know, the girlfriends are all in the huddle and consoling her. And we get in the car later in the evening and she has a complete breakdown. And it, I start getting the story and the crying about you're moving me away from my family and friends. You know, my friends are just so concerned. You're, you know, controlling and you're going to take me away from everything I've loved in my life. And you're going to take me away from my mother. And you know, as I talk about the story of how I met, uh, my ex, you know, her father, as I knew it, was not actually her father. It was her stepfather, which I understand that there's situations where stepfathers uh, can be sort of adopted into that fatherly role. But I, up at this point, never knew that she was not his biological daughter. And so, you know, the story is starting to unravel. But again, Brandon, now you're you're into a marriage. You're talking about moving and you think, well, I've committed to this. Sure, there's some oddities here, but I'm sure there's oddities in every situation, you know. Obviously, there's some things that are going to be uncovered that I was unaware of. Um, and so as the offer process goes along, you know, all of a sudden, not enough money. And, you know, I remember distinctly, we're going up to Panga Canyon Highway in California, and we're in a convertible black Mustang that I had rented you know, to do the uh, visit to the office. And she jumps out of the car on Topanga Canyon Road and starts walking down the street hysterical about me being controlling and you know, trying to uh, remove her from all of her friends and family that she's known her entire life. And I'm just in shock and awe because this is the could not be the more exact scenario that we discussed while dating and even after being married of moving, you know, right close to where we had been married and where we enjoyed, I think at that point, three vacations together. Um, so at this point, wh while this is happening, your relationship, uh, all the things that you talked about that you were both on the same page for, uh, has now disappeared. It's like the person you're talking to is a different person. It's, well, same person, but you're wondering where these uh, opposite uh, beliefs 
or dreams uh, or thoughts or, or, or conversations are, are coming from. You say that you're in shock. How are you reacting to her? And I guess what are your conversations? Like, are you trying to reason with them? And what are they saying back to you? You know, you're, there's, this person's saying that you're controlling. Like, uh, do you start searching deep within inside yourself and wondering, am I being controlling? Is she right? What do you start thinking about yourself in these moments? Like, what's going on with you here? Are you thinking you're crazy? Is she going back and saying, I never said that ever? No, that's, and that's a really funny thing you bring up. It, I, I start thinking, am I controlling? Am I doing something differently than I than we expressed that we wanted to do? And I kept coming up with no, but I, but I also had this voice, you know, wherever you want to call it, in the back of my head saying, but this girl's been through a lot. You know, I don't know this girl's story prior to me meeting her. I, you know, at this point, I was under the belief that she had a series of horrible relationships and a series of an abusive father and, you know, a savior type stepfather. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I'm one being insensitive. You know, I know we express this, but and I thought, well, maybe this is just a natural reaction to a large change. So maybe, maybe I am being too pushy. Even though it seems like we talked about this exact same scenario, maybe I am being too pushy too soon in our marriage. So, you know, she gets out of the car. Um, how does everything get reconciled? She gets out of the car. Um, you know, I sort of do the backup and you know, try to, you know, I don't want to use the word chase, but what do you do when someone's walking down a dark street? <laughs> angry, you know, yelling, you know, let's be honest, yelling obscenities and insults at you, and you don't really know what to do. You're kind of thinking, surely I'm the one wrong here, right? No one would react this way if I wasn't the one in the wrong. So you console her and you say, you know, we'll talk about it. Let's see how the final offer comes through. Let's talk this through with our families. And, um, you know, obviously together we'll make the right decision. And, you know, she calms down to a certain degree. I don't remember all the details, but, you know, certainly to a certain degree, she calms down enough to get back in the car. We go back to the hotel. We finish the sort of interview interview recruiting process, and we come back home to Cincinnati. So did you guys end up moving or no? We did not end up moving. We ended up, um, she was extremely upset about it and ended up, um, you know, for lack of better terms, we ended up talking it out, and she ended up becoming so upset that she accused uh, the owner of the company who was recruiting me of, you know, luring me away and, and not, you know, she just had this gut instinct that he would never follow through with what he said he was going to do, and we wouldn't make enough money in California, and, you know, again, like, she knows me, and her story was that she knew me and she knew my father and she knew how controlling the both of us were and that she was just so afraid and all of her girlfriends were so afraid that once we moved that you know, she would no longer have her voice and she would no longer uh, you know, be her own person, that I was changing who she was and that everyone loved who she was and that she loved who she was. So now this, so now this thing is in your head here of uh, uh, I can't, you know, she has to be the person she's going to be. No one is going to change her. 
um, from who she's supposed to be. And that's, I guess, again, another hook that's going to get in into you of like, as far as staying within your relationship, that there's no compromise on the other side. I have like, this is my truth. And if you're not going to go along with my truth, which is a big thing, sometimes uh, people like this say, they use the word my truth, you know, um, that if you don't do that, then see you later. Right. And, and she even said, I mean, she even said, you know, she accused me of saying, and I never said this, but she accused me of saying that essentially I was going to California with or without her and that, you know, if she didn't come, then I, then we could just, you know, be separated and go on our separate ways. And, you know, that was something I never said. Um, and, but, but yeah, very much, very much like that. And I've heard a lot of that over the years, the very much her truth. My father reminds me that, you know, there's everyone's truth, but then there's the truth, right? So I did a very poor job, I think, of recognizing the truth and became, you know, as a new husband, very susceptible to her truth. And I saw it in the time as, oh, I'm being supported, not in a hero fashion, but just in a, this is what I've seen my entire life from my father is being supportive of his wife. Not in the same scenario, of course, but just, okay, so because she doesn't want to go, I should be supportive of that, you know, and not really remembering that, wait a minute, we talked about this and she's not being supportive of me. So already right here, you're really turned backwards. You know, you have a lot of very odd things happening here. You're being gaslit. Uh, you're being threatened. Uh, you know, you're conforming. What is, I guess, right at this point, some people might have left. Some people stay. What is the thing you're fearing most? Like, if, 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 you, if, you, if you were to leave, like, what is the thing that you are fearing most to take that step, if, if that is even in your mind right here? I think what was in my mind was I made a commitment to be with this girl for my life. And that was, that was something that, you know, with my upbringing was a very powerful thing. You know, I made a vow. I, I said, I do. I agreed to be with her, you know, richer or poorer, better or worse. I agreed to that. And, you know, divorce in my mind or annulment was not really an option. It was, I committed to this. I do what I say I'm going to do. So clearly I'm not going to leave her. And um, that was sort of the driving, you know, kind of the driving force. And, you know, I had been so ingratiated into her friends and sort of lost some of my friends that I thought, well, maybe there was a back fear of, well, this life that I've built will now be gone as well. I had made a commitment to be with this person. And, she, you know, after we decided not to move to California, she knew that one of my other dreams, which I kind of had at a younger age, was I thought it would be interesting to buy a sort of modern house and build my own furniture for it. You know, I grew up wanting to be an architect and uh, admittedly was not a very good high school student <laughs> enough to get the grades to go to architecture school. And so... You know, as I learned through that experience and, you know, worked my way through college, I thought that, you know, a way to sort of still fulfill that dream was to buy a very interesting home and be able to build furniture for it. 
So, you know, we'll call it six months after we did not move to California and found a, a really interesting sort of, uh, I guess we'll call it transitional contemporary home with you know, big ceilings and big rooms and big windows. And we sort of, I thought, both fell in love with it. And she pitched this as, well, you know, we didn't get to go to California, so maybe I can help you fill this dream. So I thought, well, okay, let's buy this house. You know, we'll build a home together. We'll start, even in a year into marriage, we'll start new. We'll start fresh. We'll build a home. We'll, you know, start a family. And so we did. We bought a uh, a very fun house on three acres and with a wood shop. And I was able to build some really pretty pieces for our home. And that was sort of the new dream that we went, you know, forward with. So within this time of the whole blow up from California to now you're in your home, you haven't had your kids yet. This is just before you've had your kids. Uh, I, I don't know how many years have spanned here. How many, like two, three? Um, yeah, this would be about two. Okay. Right? So, and this so, is where I... So, so yeah. two years right here from that first blow mm-hmm. up to, to here. And after that first blow up, is this like a a quiet period? Are you being nitpicked in any way? What's kind of going on with you and her? How are you behaving? How is she behaving? Not at all. I think this was, this is what I would describe as the love bombing period. Um, You know, I don't think it was at the beginning of our relationship. I think it was this sort of period of time where she had gotten me to give up one of my dreams of moving to California but had kind of walked me into the secondary dream Um, because, you know, Brent, I could have done both. We could have moved to California and I could have built furniture for a home, but she sort of walked me in to the secondary dream because she had, you know, what I know now to be the term of flying monkeys. She had her group, her posse here in Cincinnati. She had her safe zone. She had her group that she could tell her stories to and gain the, you know, feed and empathy that she really desired. And in California, she wouldn't have that. So I would, I would call it the absolute love bombing period. Um, you know, I would be out working in the shop. I would be, you know, her mind paraphrasing, you know, really artistic, great builder and building a home for us, starting a family and so supportive of her career and her studying to be a CFP and, you know, in short, you know, the greatest husband that could be imagined. That was sort of this time period prior to her becoming pregnant with uh, our first daughter. And again, very exciting at the very beginning, going to doctor's appointments and just enjoying that time period as I guess most folks do. And as a new parent, you don't really know what to expect. So, you know, you get sort of the emotional ups and downs. And, you know, one day we get into a disagreement after my cousin, a very basically my brother, someone who I'd grown up with my entire life, you know, cousin uh, by title, but brother by relationship had come over to, to play some pool. And, um, you know, as I, as it's told to me now by those who are close to me is any time someone would come over, they would usually give it five or 10 minutes until my ex would come down and start a fight with me about something. And, you know, I'm a pretty laid back individual. I like to think I try to be anyway, and I would blow it off and you never really pay too much attention to it. But little did I know that I was being sort of baited into these arguments in front of strategic folks. So they would see a different side of me, you know, a completely reasonable side of me. And that was 
taking exception to whatever fight she was starting at the moment. But also she came down with, you know, chips and dip and snacks and seemed to be, you know, the greatest wife on earth. And this particular night, um, he came over and we played some pool and we went up to, we went up to bed and there was some argument. I don't remember really the nature of it, but all of a sudden, you know, she was on the phone threatening to call my cousin and tell him how horrible I was. And I said, you know, why don't we just, why don't we just go to bed? You know, it's not good to go to bed fighting. Let's just go to bed. Let's just let it go. And next thing you know, she's threatening that, you know, when my daughter's born, I won't see her anymore. I won't have any rights to her. And she's going to call my entire family and my employer and tell them how horrible I am. And I'm just shocked. You know, obviously, I have an emotional reaction to the point where I, I don't know what's going on. And, you know, I become upset and you know, say, you know, why are you doing all this? And what is all this about? And, you know, why can't we just go to bed? And, um, you know, I turn around and she's out the door running down the street, hiding behind a, um, you know, sort of one of those electrical boxes that you see at subdivisions. She's hiding behind that, you know, calling me up, telling me she's called her father and her stepfather, and he's coming to pick her up behind this electrical box. And if I come out to see her, she's going to call the police. And I'm just completely lost. And again, to your point earlier, thinking, what have I done? I must be the crazy one here. Clearly, I initiated this fight and I started this fight because if I hadn't, no one would be reacting this way. So when the stepfather shows up, like what kind of conversations do you have with him about what's going on? Because, uh, uh, you know, this person triangulates against you. Is she, does she ever say anything bad about him? Uh, does she say anything bad about other people? Like, are you being separated and them, are they being separated from you? So no one talks. Yeah, it's interesting. It was, um, you know, when he was not around her mother was not around, then they were the worst people on earth. You know, they were bad to her when she was younger. Or they had done this to her when she was younger, you know, but then when it, when she could flip it, then they were the hero and I was the villain or I was the hero and they were the villain. Um, I actually did not speak to him that night. I did not go out. I, I did not, you know, go out to the street to find her behind the electrical box. I decided no one wants to be, have the police called on them. I don't know what she's going to say. And I'm sort of in a state of shock where it just didn't seem productive. So she went home with them and the next morning early, you know, maybe five or six o'clock in the morning and her mother makes me coffee and, tells me about how, you know, my ex has done this her entire life and, you know, shared stories of, you know, escaping from canoe trips when she's been upset and running down the highway or jumping out of the street at red lights. And I think, oh, okay, well, then they understand what's going on. So, okay, we're not here to, you know, we're not here to lambast my ex. We're here to, we both are on the same page that she has these emotional um she has an emotional sort of period that she gets this way. And okay, we all understand we're here to understand, you know, we're here to support her. We understand that she you may have gone a little overboard last night, but everything's okay. She comes home with me and you know, nothing more is really said of it after that. Um, and at the time, again, I'm not really thinking 
there's something wrong here. I'm thinking I'm not handling her past in the most sensitive way I possibly could. I did something to trigger what she's gone through in her life. I'm not really sure what that is, but I've done something. So what happened next? So, you know, in my, in my job time, I did some travel overseas. So I traveled to Taiwan and China and, you know, she'd be very supportive, you know, in the group setting. Oh, it's, you know, her message would be, it's very great it's traveling. It's, it's awesome to get to see the world. But then sort of right before I went on the plane, even it would be, she would start a fight about something. I don't even remember what it was, it was so significant, but she would start a fight and it would be, well, you know, I guess you better hope that your daughter and I are here when you get back. Or I would be in Taiwan and want to, you know, obviously my daughter was not at the point where she could speak, but it would be in Taiwan where I would you know, say, hey, you know, call her up and want to speak. And she was unavailable or very, very silent and distant. Um, and even one trip, I remember getting back and you know, being at the airport and saying, you know, calling her and saying, hey, I'm here, you know, are you coming to pick me up? And it was, well, I'm just not sure we're in the right for me to pick you up. Maybe you should, you know, the time Uber was not a big thing. Maybe you should take a cab and, and come home that way. And, you know, you're here you are in a different country. Here I am in a different country, you know, thinking about my daughter and my wife and to where all I'm thinking about while I'm over supposed to be working and concentrating is whatever drama or the, the, the uncertainty of my marriage and my childhood. Um, so that kind of went on and, you know, again, like it started to ramp up at this point, but here I am again, making a commitment to this woman and having a little girl, um, <laughs> who, you know, as is, was a huge emotional thing for me and thinking, well, I've made a commitment to this. I am not leaving my daughter and I'm not leaving my wife and whatever struggles she's going through, obviously I'm contributing somehow. I don't still really know how other than just a normal boundary situation where I'm asking for what I believe to be reasonable things that she's pushing back on. And the other thing that is going on here silently is that every day, uh, who knows how long it takes in between these periods of these things happening. So maybe not every day, but, you are getting used to chaos. You're getting used to something every once in a while happening. It's always something. Nothing can ever be regular. You're going away. There's an event. You're, you go to maybe to the store. It's now this. You're going there. It's not, there's no relaxing going on. There, and even if there is relaxing, I'm sure at a certain point for you, I'm probably putting words in your mouth, but you become so used to it, you can't relax because you're waiting for the bad thing to happen. And now you're in this constant state of fear. You're in a constant state of obligation. You're in a constant state of guilt and it is running you and you are maybe trying to put out fires before they even start. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sure you you can go on about that possibly, but now you're in a state where you don't even realize it but you are not the same person and your frame of mind every day, as far as the things you 
enjoy or what you brought to life, are you the same person? Like, are you, uh, you know, uh, you, maybe for some people you might've walked into a room and you were like a, a light bulb and you're like brighten their day. Are you that person after a while? Like, or are you like really run into the ground? I, I did not recognize it at the time. Actually, my mother pointed out to me, um, you know, actually a couple of years after this had been going on. So, you know, if my first daughter was born in late 2000 or early 2015, my mother pointed this out to me maybe a year after that, that every time she sees me, I look run down and tired and my ex looks refreshed and rejuvenated. But at the time I really didn't notice it. I just, I saw it as, you know, well, children take work and children take energy and my career. And that's just, I'm just in a point in my life where I'm expending a lot of energy on those things. And so even then I didn't really see it, Brandon. I, um, but I was a different person. I can't say that I was maybe the person that lit up the room, but I was definitely the person that was laid back. And then, you know, to have my parents and my close friends, you know, constantly asking me, you know, are you okay? Are you, you know, are you getting up for rest? You know, are you, um, you know, are you focusing on your career enough? And obviously I would say yes, because I didn't want them to believe there was something wrong either. I saw a therapist who said that um, the only energy that my ex got was that that she took from me. As I recognize it now, that was the case, you know, where I would get up and, you know, I thought I was being a good husband by getting up, making her coffee, getting her ready to go to work. And, um, you know, little did I know that I was, you know, essentially being turned into sort of, I'm not going to use the word slave, but just something to enable, you know, sort of her life. So we're probably about like, what, four years in here, three to four years in. Do you feel that you're like, do you actually wake up and feel that your wife uh, or ex loves you? I don't know that I felt that. I felt that I... Did you ever even think about that? I didn't even think about that. What I felt was that I needed to be better for her in some way. And maybe if I was better, then she would become her best self, and then she would be able to give me the love that was, you know, she said was always in her for the right person. So from this point, um, do you have more children? Yeah, we had um, a son in um, late 2016. And so, um, you know, uh, she wanted, you know, I at the time wanted, you know, one child and obviously was open to other others. And we had a second child, a son. Um, she was hoping for a, another little girl and, um, which is understandable, but she, you know, we had a son and that was late 2016. And again, things were you know very normal. I, at the time, the company that I worked for had just instituted a paternal maternity leave. So I was able to take a month off and spend time with my newborn son and daughter and wife. And we did the thing that most couples would do, went to the zoo and went to lunch and enjoyed uh, the little guy. And um, again, sort of another love bombing period. And then fast forward to about when my first son, my second child was 10 months old. I woke up one morning and she had said something about um, did you get a picture of our daughter and I, you know, meaning our daughter and her last night? And I said, no, I thought about it, but just didn't, you know, wasn't able to get it. 
And immediately, like someone snapped their fingers, she said, I want you out of the house today or you will come home to divorce papers. And I said, whoa. And um, unfortunately, at the time, this was about two months after I had been let go from the company I worked for. I had worked for the manufacturing company for nine years and was let go. Um, you know, the reasons I was given were essentially they were moving in a different direction. Um, I would even know other reasons than that. Obviously, I was with them for nine years in a director level position. Didn't think a thing about it. Um, was just, you know, I just took it as a, uh, a sign of new things to come. And two months into, you know, my being unemployed, she uh, woke up one day and you know, said, essentially, you're out of the house or you're getting divorce papers when you get home. So I reluctantly agreed to go and stay with my parents for an undisclosed amount of time. So this was out of the blue. This was just out of the blue. From what I was aware of was completely out of the blue. And um, I remember like it was yesterday sitting in the driveway with my father and thinking, you know, dad, should I leave? And he said, you know, you really don't have a choice. You know, you're going to leave or you're going (laughs) to, you're going to be subject to the court system um, with a new, with a mother, with a new child. And I, you know, I said, you know, well, this is, I think this will blow over. Uh, Why don't I come stay with you guys for, you know, a week and I'll really, again, dig deep and work on myself and make sure I'm being everything I can be and, you know, come back to the house and, and uh, be a better father, whatever that meant at the time. I, (laughs) to be honest, Brandon, thought I was, a very great father. I thought I loved my children and sacrificed my time and things that fathers should do and um, didn't think there was ever a possibility of my creating these children and being in their lives and then having them taken away from me. So, you know, I went to my parents' house and, you know, did some Bible study and some self-reflection and spoke uh, occasionally. She during that week of being out of the house, she did not let me speak to the kids. Um, her excuse was that um, she did not think it was in their best interest to speak to me. And, you know, do I really, what did she say? She said, do I really want to put them through speaking to their father who's been kicked out of the house for being such an asshole? And um, I don't really know. And at the time, I really don't know what your argument is at that point. She obviously had control of the kids and, there was nothing really I could say to be able to speak to them or to be able to talk to them. And, um, you know, about four or five days into being out of the house, I started receiving phone calls from some mutual friends and you know, they were concerned about what was going on and kind of relaying their story from my ex and really confused as to what this was about. And if I had to sum it up, I think that this was the time where she simply couldn't get her group of friends to buy her story. So she had to sort of restart it again another time because no one was really buying into what the problem was. She was not able to convey what I had done or what the issue was outside of she was simply upset about a photograph not being taken. So just going back to the initial uh, kicking you out, at at that point, you know, you're shocked, but you've been through this long enough now that you're not that shocked in a way. And you kind of are waiting for things to 
blow over. Her behavior has been normalized. Mm-hmm. Do you think, you know, because you're obviously caretaking her, her emotions. You, you've become a caretaker in, in this whole entire process. You've been made into one. Do you ever think to yourself that this person is mentally ill? Or are you not even where you go because no, her, everyone else must have said at one point of her life that she's mentally ill, and obviously no one has in in that sense that she's been committed. Or you know, does she even go to a psychiatrist? So we or a therapist. We had seen marriage counselors, and you know, the marriage counselor said nothing to be about mental illness. She had said to me that her her birth father was mentally ill. And that, um, you know, they're, they're her mother and her father's divorce was nasty and that, um, you know, all kinds of fantastical stories about her birth father paying off the divorce judge to get custody. And, and really, at this point, it's almost I'm almost ashamed to say I'm, I'm buying. This. I'm thinking, well, there's no way someone would lie about this. Right. And so I'm thinking that, you know. I'm not thinking mental illness because my understanding of mental illness at the time was, you know, you watch Batman and you see the Joker and, oh, he's mentally ill. Or you see a, you know, overt criminal behave in a obscure fashion and he's mentally ill, right? But this isn't mental illness, right? This is just an emotional woman who's been through a lot in her life that perhaps isn't handling it correctly, but not mental illness, surely. You discussed that you didn't know that this existed. Correct. And, you know, now we're back here at this part of your story, and it becomes a really big thing in my mind, which is how are you supposed to know what you're dealing with? You know, you're coming from a, 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 a childhood and a family where it was normal, like... You know, everything, it was normal. You're not looking for this. Correct. So, you know, with a lot of people who are, are never had this stuff happen to them in their life are not used to it all. You're not looking for this. This is not taught to you in school. So why, you know, for you in your logic, in your logical brain, it's not going there because it's not an experience that you've ever had to associate with. Correct. Right. Right. So I, I still was not really looking for that. And, you know, as I went to, we sort of saw two count, um, two main counselors throughout our marriage. Um, as I went to the first counselor um, who we had seen previous in our marriage, he said to me that he, he described it as she would tell stories that she believed to be true, uh, meaning that because she said it, it was the truth. Um, and then she would, you would often catch her sort of telling stories in third person while, you know, closing her eyes, looking at the ceiling or looking at the floor. And it was just sort of an inner narration of a story rather than an, a sharing of an experience. And, you know, so what he said was, you know, that my ex, um, now ex, the time wife, um, you know, what he felt or what he, his gut was that she experienced severe, you know, um, spiritual oppression and severe mental illness, um, likely triggered by what he called histrionics, 
um, and that it seemed as though the pattern followed anytime she was pregnant, a major life event, or had given birth, that it sort of the histrionics manifested itself or the mental illness manifested itself. And as I look back to the timeline, I think, oh, you know, we were married and then we wanted to move and it triggered. We had our first child and it triggered. We had our second child and it triggered. And it was eye-opening, to say the least, to see the correlation between these sort of major life events and then the manifestation of this behavior. So now we're in the story where we have um, you know, we have our son and we've been, you know, I've been kicked out. I'm back in the house. Um, you know, of course there was a whole reunion and, you know, lovemaking session and just another love bombing of, you know, as I see it now, the girl didn't buy my story. So I'm going to, in her mind, I'm going to fall on the grenade, admit that a small percentage of it's my problem. Most of it is, but I am understanding wife to the point where I'm understanding his problem to bring him back into the house. Um, I got a new position, a very exciting position to work remotely for a company in Denver. And so it was great. You know, she, you know, I was able to get the kids up and get them to school, um, working remotely, especially in a different time zone. You know, it allowed me to the point where, you know, I really didn't start work until 9 or 10 o'clock. Sure, I worked late into the evening sometimes, but um, it allowed just this great balance and flexibility of caring for the children and enjoying our own lives. And we traveled to Denver together and, and you know, enjoyed that sort of time with the, with the children. And that, that was another, I guess, love bombing period, um, sort of happy period, up until the beginning of 2019. So, you know, the kicking out was in late 2017, you know, we'll call it another year and a half until the third and, you know, what is now known as the final round of this behavior commenced. And also during this time, as far as parenting goes and social time goes, is it evenly split or are you two uh, on different pages? It, is what I knew at the time evenly split, but now I recognize as my being the main caretaker. Now, she did a very clever thing in, in her mind of making sure that she was the face that the doctor saw, or she was, you know, if someone had to stay home with the baby for something for our oldest daughter, she went with the oldest daughter to be seen, and I stayed home with the baby um, sort of unseen. So the, you know, at the time I recognized it as this is just my part, and But when I was realizing it, it was actually a move to make sure that, you know, if this was ever come to a divorce, which I believe she was may have even been planning from day one, that she was the one that was the face of the parenting. It sounds like to me that in the process of your divorce, whoever your lawyer was and whoever else you were working with taught you a lot about what was going on. Yes, sir. I was blessed to have a very seasoned gentleman as an attorney, uh, to be truthful, someone probably well out of my pay grade, but had gone through a similar experience and decided to take my case on. Um, and yeah, I mean, um, sorry if I come to tears on this, but truthfully could not be more thankful for this man um, helping regulate my, emotional reactions and my 
just process of handling the court system, um, you know, with a mother of very young children. So 2019 rolls along where I guess this becomes the beginning of the end? 2019 was, yes, the beginning of the end. Um, unbeknownst to me at the time, um, we had gone, I don't remember what day it was, but we had woken up one day and she had said that she wanted a third child and that, you know, essentially um, she was not taking her birth control anymore. What she said to me was that if I don't give her a third child, she will find another man to do so. And again, here I am with these two little babies. Um, you know, daughter, we'll call it, um, you know, freshly four years old and the son, you know, two and a half. And I don't really know what to do, Brandon. I mean, I don't want to think about the idea of not being with my children every day. I understand the advantages she has in the court system and I simply try to make the best of it again. So, you know, beginning of 2019, we... For six, the first six months of 2019, I think we took four trips, one to California, one to Fort Myers, one to New York. And then um, ultimately the last trip we took as a family was for a work event that I had in Denver. And she became pregnant. Oh, I'm sorry. We went to Portland as well. And she became pregnant in Portland, Oregon. And we were home about a month. And got into some sort of, again, undescribed argument over some event that I couldn't even describe to you today. And, um, you know, I had still been seeing my the therapist that we saw originally. And he said, you need to start recording your wife. And I said, oh, that's, that's tough, man. I don't know if I can do that. And he said, well, I will tell you that I've seen this before. And. Hopefully I'm wrong, but if you don't, you're going to wish you did. And so, you know, unfortunately, I went down the path of recording conversations that her and I had starting about June of 19. And I remember one very specifically and can play it back physically and mentally where she said to me that um, she was pregnant with our third child, son. She said to me that um, you have no right to this child. Um, and you are going to have to make me take a paternity test to have rights. And I really, that was the moment it truly hit me what, what I was involved in and what the degree at which this person would go to, the lowness, I guess I should say, this person would go to, um, to, I don't know what you want to call it, sever ties with my children or gain control of the children or destroy me. And, um, you know, I learned through a friend that she's seen a divorce lawyer. And um, the story is that I'm a verbally abusive and abusive to the children and that my parents are abusive. And I don't really know what to do. And I'm counseling with, one of my best friends and my father, what to do. We're seeing a marriage counselor and she comes to me and she says that, you know, she's decided to turn over a new leaf and that she really wants to move forward and parent these three children and develop our life together. And so this is late summer of 2019. 
And so, you know, relief sort of hits me like, okay, this, this person must be being sincere, right? You know, no one would be unsincere about that kind of expression. And so we go to Denver in August of 2019, a family trip. Um, she's pregnant at the time. Um, let's see what we call that. We'll call that three or four months pregnant at the time. And I go, you know, we have a good weekend together. And I go to the office on Monday morning um, as we, you know, had agreed to in the plan. And I come back to the hotel room and she's gone. She had packed up the two children. She had flown them back in the middle of the night to Cincinnati. Um, as I come to find out after the fact um, from a friend that she had plans to essentially file divorce papers and a restraining order against me while I was in Denver, not expecting that I would you know, come back. So, you know, this is Monday morning um, or Monday evening, I guess, and you know, here I am in this empty hotel room. My children are gone. I have no idea where they are. I have no idea where she is. No idea why she even left. Um, you know, five days previously, she had talked about moving forward and turning over a new lease and moving on with her life. And here she's gone. And I contacted a divorce attorney, and we were able to, you know, quickly put together divorce papers um, to sort of prevent, I guess the onslaught of restraining orders and what, whatever accusation she was going to come up with on her papers. I, I got a few vague text messages that, you know, my ex was okay and the children were okay. And, you know, of course, thinking to myself, uh, of course they're okay. Why would they not be okay? And, um, yeah, she's not picking up the phone. We'll talk about when we get home. And I had in the back of my mind that she had already seen a divorce lawyer and so the attorney that I spoke with said, you know, she's seen this before and it sounds like what, you know, she's going to do, knowing the attorney she hired, what the attorney she hired was known for was this sort of ambushing type move. Um, so little did I know that before we even went to Denver, she had bought tickets before we left at return tickets before we even left. So when we were on the plane to Denver, she had tickets all ready to return from Denver. So no matter what happened during that weekend, it could have been the greatest weekend uh, that existed. She had tickets to return with the kids. So the plan was already in motion to come home, say I did X, Y, Z in Denver, and she needed a, a PTO, um, a TPO, temporary, temporary protection order, and, um, you know, file her papers, you know, suggesting and accusing I don't know what, I don't want to know what. Um, so, you know, we decided the best course of action was to sort of preemptively file papers, preventing her from being able to make those accusations. She could still make them, of course, but they would look at this point like they were, which was, you know, basically retaliatory nonsense. Um, so within this time, obviously, you, you make your way back to Cincinnati, I assume. And what, what, I guess, uh, what are, I guess, the things that start happening in the months leading uh, up to the divorce um, in the sense of odd things that you might have found? Um, I started noticing text messages from coworkers, uh, male coworkers, uh, which I didn't think a lot about because she worked with. No. 
Um, and, you know, kind of leading up to the divorce, she had been going to, we'll call it three or four happy hours a week and not happy hours till six or seven o'clock, but happy hours till nine or 10 o'clock. And one particular night, um, couple, when she was about a month pregnant, she got pulled over at 3 a.m. for DUI. Now she was able to, in her charming ways, skate out of it. Um, but, you know, I remember distinctly, you know, the officer telling me that he has to release her to me um, because she, you know, she had no car and we went out to get my car. And it was, and then, you know, I sort of took exception to these happy hours and she would play it off as I was being controlled and not letting her just go out with their girlfriend. And again, I'm thinking, man, am I being that guy? Am I being controlled? I mean, but, you know, obviously in retrospect, three or four happy hours a week with young children is inappropriate. Being out that late is inappropriate. And, um, but still not thinking that, still going with the story that she's, this is just her and I need to be supportive of her. So, you know, as she comes back and the divorce papers are filed, I, um, you know, I get back from Denver and I had this really funny feeling about my car and the battery, the, the, um, the clock was wrong and the seat was moved. And I said, this is really weird. My car started right up. There'd be no reason for the battery to be reset. And I said to my attorney, I wonder if there's a tracker on my car. And she said, you know, that's not possible. People can't do that. Um, you, you know, there's no way they could have done that in 24 hours. And I look and look on the car and, uh, you know, Brandon, lo and behold, under the dash, under the center console, there is a hardwired um, car tracker, GPS tracker on my car. And um, I guess how they installed it was they disconnected the battery, installed the tracker, uh, explaining the seat being moved and the clock being wrong. And here's this literal hardwired GPS tracker on my car. Um, I guess for the purposes of tracking wherever I went. So, you know, luckily my intuition in this case was correct. And I did not take my car to my attorney's office. I took my father's car. So she was really unaware that I was coming back, you know, to you know, sort of preemptively, preemptively file papers on her. And, you know, we were able to protect me from those allegations by getting that filed prior to her being able to, um, you know, and then, you know, we lived in the same house together as the divorce started. I knew that if I left the house on my own accord, that that was going to be a negative thing. You know, it would be viewed as my leaving the residence uh, voluntarily. So, so, so you're staying in the house at this point because of, uh, the legal ramifications when it comes to custody and, uh, you know, cause I'm sure a lot of people are thinking like, why are you staying in, in the house with her? How is this happening of everything that's gone on? You know, how are you there? How is she allowing you there? But because of the rule of law and custody and divorce right now, you have no choice but to be in there because it might look bad uh, in the eyes of the court. Correct. That's the way I felt the time. And, um, you know, as the divorce sort of in that, you know, situation sort of passed, I had the local police station uh, officer come out and de, um, I guess, disable the car tracker. 
So she was no longer able to track my car. Um, and the next few months went kind of really as normal. I mean, we went on, we went to mediation. I thought we were getting along. We were going to agree to share parenting. We were going to agree to split this up and we were going to move on. And about Christmas Eve, it was, it was, I think it was December 21st. We received an occupancy motion where, uh, my ex was, um, requesting the court grant her occupancy of the house, essentially removing me from the house. And, um, you know, we, the judge essentially said that she's not going to kick a pregnant woman out of the house and that I had to leave. And so here I am, you know, quite literally on Christmas Eve, packing up my personal belongings out of, you know, a home that I had made, renovated, built furniture for, my children were in. And here I am on Christmas Eve packing up and leaving my home December 24th, 2019. After I left the house, um, you know, kind of was removed from the house on Christmas Eve, I went to stay with my parents. I had really no other place to go and on 24-hour notice. So two weeks after I was removed, um, I started coming to the house to pick up the kids for, you know, my time with the children and saw a car I didn't recognize and a person I didn't recognize in the house window, we had a very modern house with sort of big glass windows in the foyer. And, you know, you could see in the house for the most part. And there was a man in the house I didn't recognize. And, um, you know, again, at this point, I'm not really thinking about the relationship or who she's with. So didn't really concentrate on that. At this point, all bets were off. I could, she could have had a boyfriend. She could have been married for all I know. Uh, I would have believed about anything at this point. And, um, Another man, I guess, moved in the house. A former coworker of hers, um, who had so this, so this, so this person actually moved in. When did you find out that they moved in? Officially, we she, officially, even to this day, she has not admitted he lived there. What she says is he stays there every night, but does not live there. But as far as, you know, in the timeline of you see this guy there, how long after did you find out that they were a thing? Um, I found I probably had a recognition they were a thing when I went to my son's birth, uh, hospital after his birth. And I asked. So, so that's what, like six or seven weeks later or six something or seven like weeks that? Later, yeah, that's fair. Six or seven weeks later. Okay. So, so your son is then born and then there's this guy there. I mean, that, like, I mean, obviously you're so happy that your son is born, but at the same time, that has to be a massive punch in the gut after everything you've dealt with to know that immediately there's this other person there. Yeah, and I think it was not on a, on a relationship level. In other words, I didn't, it did not hit me that my ex-wife was with someone else, but that with someone else was with my children. You know, I've heard so many stories of people going through these where they're sort of emotionally wrapped up in their ex. And I, I can say, Brandon, I was blessed for that not to be the case. You know, when you know, I think when you go through an ER visit and a disappearance from another city, you're, I was able to be remo- emotionally removed from my ex. So, you know, fortunately, I didn't have the emotion of she's moved on. I more had the emotion of who is this person with my children? And I go to visit 
you know, my third son in the hospital and I say, and, you know, they kind of say, you know, who are you? And I say, you know, I said to the, to the you know, ladies at the desk, I said, I believe I am this child's father. Um, I don't know if I have the right to see him. And they said, you know, you're listed as, you know, the, the father. I said, okay. And I and and she and she said to me, "There's been other people here to see him." And I said, "You know, would you share with me who they were?" And I remember the look in this woman's eye, and she realized something was going on. And um, you know, I won't name the hospital because I don't know if they should have done this, but they actually gave me a copy of every person's driver's license who had visited my son, and I saw this other man's driver's license copied. Um, who I knew to be a former coworker of my ex-wife and he was actually there for the birth of my son and I was not. And, um, that's, I think when I really realized that, Oh, there's has been something that is going on and may have been going on for an unknown amount of time. And does he believe he's the child's father? I don't know. All I know is here's a man who I've never met or even officially heard of, um, you know, two months later at the birth of my son, who I came to find out was my son, um, and I wasn't. You know, so here I, I go down, I went down to visit my son five times, and I remember each time, you know, saying to my father, like, I, I can't do this. I can't go down. Um, sorry. I can't go down. I can't go down and see this child. I can't... Um, I can't do this to myself. If he turns out he was in the NICU, that he had had um, he had had trouble breathing. So he, sorry, he had had trouble breathing. So he had to be in the NICU, and um, I remember saying, "I don't think I can go down and see this little baby," and then him not end up being mine. And my father said to me that um, there's no way that you can't go down because if he ends up being yours, you will never um, forgive yourself for not going to see him. Um, so you know, here I go down in the middle of the night to see this little baby. No one's around. You know, his mother's not there. Um, you know, I find out that she's not really there a lot um, all other than just to feed, um, which you know, she has her reasons for, um, which I'm not, not my place to say, but so he comes home. Um, you know, obviously he stabilized. He wasn't, I would not say he was in serious condition, but certainly in, you know, it was being observed and he comes home and, um, it was about six weeks before I saw him again. I would go to the house to get the other children and she would have a girlfriend, you know, standing there holding our son at the door where, I saw him, but couldn't hold him. And obviously kind of taunting me with him. And, um, we did the paternity test and it turned out he is my son, uh, which I'm thankful for. And, um, finally there, her lawyers agreed that I would get one hour a day with him every other day at noon. So I would go over, you know, to our marital home and see him for an hour a day, hold him. Um, but in the room, where I saw him, I was locked in the room, unable to use the restroom, unable to leave. And there was five, I believe five security cameras watching me 
in a essentially 10 by 12 room. So after that, you, you know, you're going through the whole entire divorce process. Uh, I guess what happened uh, there and I guess what are the things you learned within that whole entire process? Because, you know, today you're talking to everyone uh, about your story and, and you're very calm. And as I said before, it sounded like you learned a lot from your lawyers of how to handle yourself. So kind of walk us through your whole process of what went on, things that surprised you, things that might have blown your mind, uh, and maybe some of the little tricks that were played and, and how you handled everything. Um, well, what surprised me, I guess, was that, that the, the court system is uninterested in accountability and what's right and wrong. Um, I found, at least in where I live, the court system seemingly was interested in that. You know, I do think that despite being removed from the house on Christmas Eve, that the judge was fair to me and that she did not make me pay for the house or child support for the children. Um, I think that she was probably put in a bad place where, you know, clearly you have a mother who's done wrong, um, but she's also pregnant. And so she really was left with no choice. Um, you know, we went through about a year of fighting back and forth with her attorneys. Um, you know, her attorney actually was funny enough, her, the attorney she chose was her father's attorney during her mother and father's divorce. So the attorney that she complained about for years, having paid off the judge and being sleazy, she essentially went and hired that very same person. So, um, we finally get to the point where, you know, fortunately enough, I have enough recordings of her behaving in a certain manner with the children saying a certain amount of things to me. Um, we did a property exchange and found that she had planted recorders around the property, hoping to record conversations between the people that were there to help me collect my property and I. Um, and essentially, um, you know, I, I don't know how to say this, but we essentially said, if you want to litigate this, then here are the recordings we're going to present. We're going to present her with charges of wiretapping. Um, and that's what we're going to do. And about three days later, we found out that her attorneys essentially fired her. So she was forced to change attorneys after the evidence came out. And in lieu of going to trial, she agreed to enter into a shared parenting plan, um, with all of our children. So do you have any problems when it comes now to uh, parallel parenting, co-parenting? What do you do? Well, the, the parallel, the co-parenting is non-existent. I mean, it's um, my therapist described it as um, what they, what the people with this personality do is what's called a reverse confession. So essentially they will accuse you of the very things they're guilty of. So a good example is actually today. Um, I received a message from my ex saying that, um, you know, it's inappropriate for me to send our young son in shoes that do not fit his feet. And, you know, don't you think it's in the best interest of the children to have shoes that fit their feet? Well, the story, the part of the story she's immediately leaving out is that those are her shoes that she sent him to me in. So I was simply returning the child in the shoes that she sent him in. But how it will be twisted is that I sent him back in shoes that didn't fit, not that she 
sent him shoes that didn't fit that I had then returned. So you can imagine a series of daily, sometimes multiply daily, um, petty instances of twisting the story. Um, I had to call 241 Kids actually yesterday um, because my oldest son told me that he showers with her boyfriend. So my oldest son is five and my youngest son is um, about 22 months. And he tells me that he frequently gets in the shower with her boyfriend, um, (laughs) which I find to be completely inappropriate and abusive. And, um, you know, unfortunately, while the social worker agreed that it was completely inappropriate, what she said to me was that, you know, if there's no accusation of physical abuse, that they are not able to investigate. So you're kind of left with a person that, given no consequences and no accountability, is able to sort of do whatever they want, and it's sort of a catch-me-if-you-can. You spend most of your time following up on these horrible parenting decisions and misbehavior only to when they come to fruition, there's some sort of excuse and rationalization for them happening. And the story is so convoluted by that point, no one really knows what to do. And thus they throw their hands up and say, well, you guys need to figure it out. You know, a lot of people, when they don't have kids, when it's over, they're able to go through the healing process and get a little bit of a breather. And for you, this is a continuous thing now every single day and will be until, you know, until they're not in the home with her anymore. So as far as as you go, you know, you found our show somehow. And, you, you know, you started researching all of these things. So what was the whole entire healing process for you? Uh, and are you able to uh, heal? Because it's a, it's a daily thing for you. Yeah, I think that I've noticed a difference in myself even the past month. Um, we have a parenting coordinator. And, um, you know, her term is up fairly soon. And what the parenting coordinator turned into was essentially an ear for complaints and accusations. And so I think as I've seen sort of the light at the end of the tunnel of not having that individual and uh, my ex being forced with the option of taking everything to court, it's really provided me some peace in that, okay, like there's only so much I can control. You know, even in speaking with the social worker yesterday, it was, this is what, you know, this is the steps I can do as a father and if you decide not to investigate, then so be it. But I've done what I had to do. Um, I said what I had to say. Um, as far as healing, it is a daily thing. And I've spent, you know, a good part of two years healing from this. And you know, what I've learned through various YouTube channels and shows as such as your own is that you simply can't live in it. You know, the more you live in it, the more it manifests itself. So trying to live outside of it, trying to enjoy the time that I do have with them, build into them as much as I can with good parenting, um, able parenting, and you know, values and ethics is what I can do. You know, what I cannot do is control what goes on on her time. You know, nor do I want to necessarily control, but I'd like for it to be a more positive experience, but I have no control over that. 
And if you had any words of wisdom for everyone who is listening, what would it be? When you're accused of something, you automatically become defensive. And what I've learned from my attorneys is that as soon as you defend it, you acknowledge it. And so when a accusation comes your way, I would encourage the response to be simply no. No, this is not true. <clears throat> no, I did not do this. And, um, because if you, what these people with this personality want to do is they want to fight. They want to engage you. They want to draw you in to get feed and get sourced and get, you know, basically, the, as you say, the vampire, their lifeline from the argument. They don't really even want to win the argument per se. They just want to have an argument. And, um, we, you know, with my ex, we would go 30 messages deep, going back and forth, talking in a circle, accomplishing absolutely nothing, draining my energy, you know, not coming to a conclusion. But what that does is give her 30 messages of fee and source. And she derailed my day in some way. She took up my time in some way. So what I would encourage um, folks to concentrate on are the big issues concentrate on the facts, try to explain things in a, as clinical a way as possible, um, as, as impossible as it is sometimes, remove emotion because it makes, it makes your argument ineffective. It clouds your message. Now, I've, been, I've been told this before numerous times by folks in the court system that essentially you are right, but the way you present it clouds your message. So, I've really tried to dial in the message to stick to the point. Don't waver off into some other topic. Um, be as short and concise as possible and as clinical as possible. Well, Roman, thank you for being here today. And, you know, we don't have that many men on uh, the show. So a big thank you for, for being here today. I'm sorry you had to go through everything that you went through and that it's still, you know, going on, but I I'm hopeful, you know, you're, you're the way you've been handling things that you're gonna, even though it's going to be a real long haul, um, that you have, you have a good support system, you have a good family and people around you. So, uh, you know, just a really big thank you for, for being here today and, and sharing your story. Yes, sir. Thank you. So once again, a big thank you to Roman. And now let's talk about being a guest on our show. So for the people that want to be a guest on our show, please do go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, guest form button, click on it. Goes to a guest form page, read all the instructions, fill out the guest form or send us an email from that page and we will go from there. Also, if you want some support, go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Yes, that website, once again, top of the page, there's a button that says support group. You press that button, takes you to our very own safe social network. On there, we have our very own forums. We have support groups every Wednesday and Saturday night in the new year. We will be doing an afternoon one as well. We haven't chosen the day yet, but we will be doing one. For all those people out there that need support during the day or the Europeans 
that listen to the show that are only able to listen at night their time, it'll all work out. So go to our website, NarcissistApocalypse.com. Support group button at the top of the page. Also in our safe support group that we have there, we have meditation nights. We have closure ceremonies. We have new beginning ceremonies. We just have a great group of people. So again, just go to NarcissistApocalypse.com. Support button, top of the page. We will go from there. But if you need even more support, everyone, please do go to, uh, please do, please do go to domesticshelters.org. So if you or somebody you know are experiencing abuse, you are not alone because domesticshelters.org offers an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you are experiencing. And if you want to connect to the local resources, you can find it at domesticshelters.org. You can also find ways to heal and move forward. It is an excellent free resource, so please do go to domesticshelters.org. And a big shout-out to Ashley from domesticshelters.org, who's just a great person who works there and helps us out here as well. So a big thank you to her. And that... I think is it for today, everyone. So, uh, you know, a big thank you once again to Roman. And now, from Roman and I, we hope you have a good night. <laughs>